Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Today, we have Max Lugavere, the New York Times bestselling author of Genius Foods, Become Smarter, Happier, and More Productive While Protecting Your Brain for Life. As a health and science journalist, he is also a sought-after nutrition expert and so much more, contributing to so many top publications and more. Welcome to the show, Max. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here, Elle. Thanks. Congratulations, New York Times bestselling author. Everybody wants to be that. Let's go first into, before we delve into the, you know, tenets of your book, let's get into, you know, how did you even get into writing and then health writing? So tell us your journey. Yeah, absolutely. So um, about, uh, man, 15 years now, I got a job uh, straight out of college hosting and producing content for a TV network that former U.S. Vice President Al Gore co-founded called Current TV. And uh, it was at that network that I really got to sort of um, hone my storytelling and journalistic skills with some of the best and the best um, in show business. And it was a, an amazing job opportunity that allowed me to be both on TV and enjoy the perks that come with uh, such, a, such a job. But then also the network was very much about um, impact and, you know, leaving the world sort of better and perhaps even smarter than it was before. So I did that for five, six years. Um, and then when I left current TV to try to figure out where I was going to go with my career, I was sort of, um, I, I likened myself during that phase to being sort of like a, a stem cell. I was undifferentiated. I <laughs> was a generalist on current TV. I really got to explore the full range of my passions, which always included health and nutrition, but you know, also in, it involved technology and, uh, politics to some degree, but, when I um, was sort of trying to carve out where I was going to go in my late 20s, it was at that exact moment in my personal life. I started spending more and more time in New York City, where my mom lives. And I noticed at the time that it had seemed as if her brain power had sort of downshifted. Um, you know, my mom is always has always been a spirited New Yorker, very fast walking, fast talking. Uh, anybody who today you would consider a high performer. She ran a business. She raised three kids. But back then, it seemed suddenly as though her brain had been replaced with that of a much older person. Her processing speed had slowed dramatically. Um, and this coincided also with a change to her gait, which is the way a person walks. And Interesting. Yeah. I had no prior history of any kind of neurological condition, so I couldn't even put two and two together to the point where, you know, the, that her movement could possibly be um, altered by something going on in her brain, um, was not something that even occurred to me. So it led to me ultimately going around the country with my mom to some of the top neurology departments that we have here in the United States. Um, in every single instance I experienced, uh, what in retrospect I've come to call diagnose and adios. Um, and then ultimately it was at the Cleveland clinic where for the first time my mom was diagnosed with a neurodegenerative disease. And, uh, again, she was 58. She was very young, blonde, you know, not somebody succumbing to the ravages of aging. Uh, so because I couldn't really blame old age, 
I became obsessed with trying to figure out everything that you know I possibly could about how our environments, which includes our diets, can play a role in, in brain health and brain function. Um, part of this had to do with the fact that my grandmother, who is no longer with us, but at the time she was about 94 years old, was, was cognitively sharper than my mom. She was sharp as a tack, and yet my mom was developing uh, the earliest, or showing rather, the earliest symptoms of dementia. So I had this hunch that something had to have changed in between my grandmother's generation and my mother's generation that really led to my mom developing this condition. And where I began first was food, because food is so intricately, intricately related to all of the other problems that we're seeing burdening modern society when it comes to non-communicable diseases. And, uh, and so, yeah, I just, I dug into the literature and that really began the journey that today, um, is, has manifested as genius foods. I also love that this is a journey of, I want to save my mom cause she's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, just speaks to how awesome moms are. Um, what, what did you discover along the way? I mean, what, or, or I would say, obviously your book is the discovery, but I guess my first question would be, what were some things that you were currently, let's say, maybe eating that in your discovery, you were like, Ooh, I need to start to maybe stop doing that. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, one of the first, I started at, at, um, sort of from the bird's eye view and I began looking at, um, dietary patterns that are associated with reduced risk for neurological conditions. So, you know, most, um, clinicians, researchers will cite the Mediterranean dietary pattern as being, uh, the most well-documented, um, in terms of its neuroprotective effect. Um, but then I, I, you know, not content to just stop there. Um, I started breaking it down and I started asking myself, what are the kinds of foods that the brain really needs to thrive? And also from an evolutionary lens, which I know your listeners will appreciate, I, you know, really started to, to wonder what are the, the essential ingredients that the, that, ultimately led to the evolution of the human brain that about 10,000 years ago, it seems we, to some degree at least, turned our backs on. And I started looking at the nutrients contained in foods like dark leafy greens, you know, that we know modern people, Americans in particular, are not consuming enough of. Um, I started looking at fats, knowing that the brain is constituted of fat. 60% of the, of the human brain is, is constructed of fat. But it's the kind of fats that really dictate the moment-to-moment functioning of the brain as well as its predilection for disease. Um, the Mediterranean dietary pattern obviously really leans heavily on extra virgin olive oil. Um, but we can look at randomized controlled trials that actually, you know, those are the kinds of trials required to prove cause and effect. And from those trials, we can actually see that extra virgin olive oil is not just associated with better health, but actually can improve health. Um, and, uh, and yeah, but then there are other aspects of the Mediterranean diet that, um, you know, I think researchers today erroneously uh, conflate the Mediterranean diet with sort of this hybridized, westernized American version of it. They call it the grain-based Mediterranean diet, um, which is really funny because, you know, you would almost think that there was a biological necessity for grains. Um, but there's actually none. And, uh, 
And so that was one of the first things that I cut out of my diet, which is, um, which was hard for me to let go of actually, because I grew up eating grains and I've always really been interested in health. So I grew up eating primarily whole grains. Um, I always used to believe that every meal had to include a grain. And even though I was in what I call the 1% of grain consumers eating them predominantly in their whole form, my energy levels always throughout the day felt like a roller coaster. So as soon as I cut those out of my diet, I mean, cognitively, I, you know, brain fog went away. Um, my energy levels stabilized and yeah, I mean, it was definitely, um, one of those things that, uh, that, you know, we can go into, um, in further detail, but in terms of managing the body's blood sugar seems to be also very important. Um, I explore this notion pretty in depth in my book that, uh, Alzheimer's disease might be a form of diabetes of the brain. Yeah. Well, Dr. Perlmutter, I think says he calls it type three diabetes or something. I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely that it seems. Yeah. So the, the actual researcher who coined that term, her name is Suzanne de Lamonte and she's at Brown university. And I had the distinct privilege of getting to visit her lab and interview her in person. Um, and it seems that what they see in the brain of a person with Alzheimer's disease is strikingly similar to what occurs in the cells of a person with type two diabetes. And that's where I began looking into research on metabolic health. And for people that are already um, dealing with uh, metabolic problems, which unfortunately make up about half of the U.S. population, if not more, um, going on a low-carb diet now has um, dozens uh, of randomized controlled trials to show that they're not only safe but highly effective in terms of sort of um, righting the ship in, you know, and, and helping a person regain metabolic health. So adopting a low carb diet was, um, you know, one of the first things that I, that I did in my journey and then adding in more extra virgin olive oil, um, and then cutting out the really unhealthy fats. I know, you know, you guys are such incredible pioneers when it comes to really help or helping separate fat from fiction, um, and, and highlighting the dangers of grain and seed oils, which have just become saturated in the modern food supply. But those are highly damaging to the brain, and uh, that that also was a major discovery. Um, just how unhealthy those those fats and oils are. Yeah, and by the way, I want to stop in here. So, to our audience and in general, in in the paleo world, it's a big theme to have a bottle of MCT oil around, right, or coconut oil. And you know, if you need a little kind of brain upper and you need a little holdover with food, you take a sip of that or whatever. And what happens is, is a lot of people, including myself, ran into this problem is you end up like so overdoing and exclusively hitting saturated fat. Like there's nothing wrong with that either. But I sometimes say, switch it up. I take sometimes occasionally a swig of olive oil, which by the way, is very tasty, <laughs> but you know what I mean? So there's, there's other ways, you know, sometimes you're like, Oh, people are like, Oh, I never thought of that. And you're like, yeah, but you can do that too. You know, you don't just have to constantly go for these, you know, superior, you know, considered superior keto or other oils. And sometimes in the paleo world, because coconut is such a theme, people can go too far in one direction and not be getting the variety. So I'm really glad you just brought up olive oil because for those out there, they're like, oh yeah, maybe I've been doing too much of the other. Add that in, start to switch it up. Yeah. Well, just to throw another wrench into the whole paleo community, I don't actually consider myself like a hardcore paleo, um, you know, uh, uh, advocate because, you know, I think, um, 
it's probably different for everybody. And uh, there is this trend in the paleo community, as you mentioned, to really overdo it with saturated fat. And I think unlike most people, now that the pendulum has swung in the other direction where fat is back, I'm not a big advocate of consuming uh, excessive saturated fats. I don't I don't necessarily think that, um, you know, I think when contained in whole foods, saturated fats are fine. But if you consider the fact that a properly raised animal has less saturated fat in it as a proportion of its fat content than a grain fed animal, that that gives you a hint as to the relative proportion of saturated fat that I think we're meant to eat. I don't know any um, legitimate researcher in the brain health space who uh, endorses eating um, you know, excessive saturated fat, or even would go so far as to say that saturated fat is healthy. Certainly we need some of it, but our livers produce uh, saturated fat. Um, it's sort of like the cholesterol conundrum. Like we know, we now know that the notion that dietary cholesterol is bad for you is a complete myth, right? But does that mean that we should chase it as a nutrient? Uh, no, because actually your liver, it's about four egg yolks worth of cholesterol every single day on its own. Right. And, you know, also too, it's, it's, well, and again, I don't think it's a trend. Look, it's a, well, a trend mistake, a mistake trend is what it is because, and that's why I say that it's, it's too swinging far in the direction of going for one source and type of fat. And we would say at Primal Blueprint, no, you absolutely have to switch it up and you have to see your own tolerance. The other mistake, of course, we talk about is that people make is just because something's a high fat paradigm doesn't mean more fat, all the fat you want. You know what I mean? So there's like just, there's misunderstandings around it and these nuances. And, you know, I myself too had to just, again, cut back on the saturated fat. And again, mostly because it was conveniently in things. But when you wake up every morning, if every morning you're having like a cup of saturated fat coffee in like a, like three, you know, two tablespoons of MCT and, and a spoonful of butter, then yeah, you've got to gauge what else you're going to do during the day. I'd rather get it from food, like you said, you know, preferably. Um, but I just think that's a good point to bring up olive oil and how wonderful it is. And, you know, we need to not forget avocados and olive oil and stuff like that. Definitely. Yeah. Avocado oil is great. Um, I mean, one of the problems with eating an excessive amount of saturated fat is that it reduces LDL receptors on the liver, which is, uh, you know, important when it comes to LDL recycling in the body. So um, for people that are genetically at higher risk for developing Alzheimer's disease, um, you know, the nutrigenomics were just at the very tip of the iceberg in terms of being able to make recommendations for people, uh, you know, completely uh, bespoke and customized to their genotypes. But it's thought that one of the one of the mechanisms which seems to imp uh, impose a higher cardiovascular uh risk to patients, to people rather with the APOE4 allele is that they're not as good at recycling um, cholesterol, essentially leading to these LDL lipoprotein particles, spending more and more time in circulation, thus becoming more small and dense, which is sort of the profile that these particles take on, which is thought to be the more risky um, variant as opposed to large and fluffy and buoyant. Um, so we need these LDL lipoprotein particles to be recycled by the liver, but one of the one of the ways in which saturated fat actually does raise um, cholesterol, both your LDL and your HDL, is by reducing the amount of these uh, LDL receptors that are allowed to surface. So we really want to help our livers uh, be as efficient as as at po as possible at their hundreds of jobs that they they have in the body. Um, and so actually, you know, for APOE4 carriers, I don't recommend uh, consuming an excessive amount of butter or ghee or anything like that. I think when contained in whole foods, it's totally fine. But um, 
but yeah, I'm, I'm more a fan of monounsaturated fat, uh, as, a as the, the oil and the fat fatty acid type to really consume, um, liberally in your diet. Yeah, no, I would agree. And also, you know, my genetic testing came back as, uh, having a, you know, predisposition to possibly not tolerating saturated fat. You know what I mean? So sometimes these things can inform some hacks of our own to try. But I think if you've gone in one, in one direction the whole way, you know, chill out, go the other for a bit, see how that works. And also with regards to grains, going back to what you said, you know, it's hard for everyone to quit grains. We've all grown up with it everywhere, you know what I mean? And and the thing is, the one thing that's funny, and I'm sure you've heard this from people too, Max, is everyone still, though, will hold on to like the oatmeal. Like that's the last one people just can't let go. They, they still have the like, well, but that's healthy still for you, right? Like there's still, it's just funny how you go through those stages until you get down the line, you know, and finally you're like, you cut it out and you see how it impacts your life. And you're like, no, there's no need to have oatmeal, you know, but it's just funny. I'm sure you've heard a lot of interesting objections yourself. Definitely. I mean, I think, you know, if you're eating steel cut rolled oats, uh, gluten-free, I mean, and you're metabolically healthy, then go for it. But I mean, most people are, what is essentially have essentially become carbohydrate intolerant. So for that person, do I think that oatmeal is a health food? Absolutely not. No, yeah, I'm with you on that. So what else did you, well, let's talk about how then did your research, I mean, did you get to a point where then your, you and your family were adopting these principles and you saw some changes or tell us the journey of how, you know, writing this book and doing this research and going down this road affected you, I would like to hear more about how if I know your brain lit up, you noticed some energy things. What else did you notice? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, you know, um, it became a, a very personal mission for me, both in terms of trying to see if there was anything that I might be able to do to help my mom. And that was definitely the uh, the inciting incident, my mom's diagnosis that really kind of set me off down this path. But um, it became much larger than just being about my mom. Um, when I, when I realized that we are all ultimately at risk for what my mom developed, I mean, whether or not you have the gene that we were just talking about, anybody can develop Alzheimer's disease. Anybody can develop vascular dementia. Anybody can suffer brain fog. In fact, one in seven younger people today between the ages of 18 and 39 complain of memory problems. I mean, this is shocking. One in six adults is on or is, or has used, uh, some kind of psychiatric drug. One in 10 is on an antidepressant. Um, so, you know, our modern environments and our food supply have become so far removed from that in which our brains evolved that they are now completely struggling to survive. In the book, I make the analogy that, um, you know, the modern world is sort of like the Hunger Games and our brain is like an unwitting combatant being hunted from every every which way. And, uh, you know, once we get back to um, emulate principles and eating patterns and lifestyle practices that that emulate the conditions under which the human brain was honed. I think it becomes clear that the brain um, it helps the brain not, not only survive but to thrive. So I mean, just you know, personal end of one anecdote. I my whole life uh, had struggled with problems with executive function. So. ADD is considered uh, an executive function problem, um, and though I was never formally diagnosed with ADD, I um, was advised by my guidance counselor in my elementary school to uh, that my parents should take me to see a psychologist, probably to get you know some kind of drug prescription at the time. But this is one of the main reasons why my grades always suffered all throughout my schooling. Even though teachers always loved me because I always was a very curious person, always asked great questions. Um, and really showed a passion for learning, 
I struggled to uh, make good grades. And it's one of the reasons why, despite always having a passion for health and fitness and nutrition, I didn't go the medical school route. I was pre-med for two years in college, and then I realized that my brain just wouldn't let me keep up with the the academic rigors of you know the medical route. So it's something that I'd struggled with uh, for quite a while. Executive function, by the way, includes planning, decision making, impulse control, sensory gating, being able to direct focus and attention, um, things like that, being able to delay gratification. Um, and these, these aspects of our cognition all seem to be heavily reliant on what it is that we're eating. Um, and I noticed that once I started eating the foods and, and adhering to the tactics I outlined in the book, my brain started working better. I mean, it's one of the reasons that I think I have a book because, you know, prior to really going down this rabbit hole and, uh, uncovering the diet, you know, that I think we, you know, best emulates in the modern supermarket, um, the type of diet that we might've consumed when our brains evolved. I think it really gives your brain the best tools and nutrients to really, um, you know, perform at its best. Wow. That's no, it's amazing. What an amazing journey. Also, you know, talking to a doctor recently about, uh, Parkinson's again, and about literally how like a hundred people, a hundred percent of the people in a study had some improvement. Um, by switching up their diet to, you know, more of a, or actually in that case, it was a keto paradigm. Um, but just very interesting. And it's so interesting with my personal experience as well. Uh, the differences in my brain, it's so nice to have steady brain mental energy throughout the day with not feeling like these dips and drops and that I need external things to pick me up. Such a steady place to be, you know, emotionally as well. I'd like to hear uh, how you feel about that as well. Like, you know, where, where you might've felt and then where you feel now in terms of steadiness, mood, all of that. Cause this is so contributed to, you know, contributive to mood. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I talk about that in the book. We, I highlight research that um, was published just last year, uh, from Deakin university's food and mood center, where for the first time in a small study, um, but in, in people, and it was a randomized controlled trial, they used a dietary pattern that acted as a profound antidepressant. So, there were about 70 people in this trial and half were randomized to uh, standard of care. They were all suffering from major depression. Um, and the other half was given sort of a modified Mediterranean diet, uh, a diet that really uh, weighed heavily on um, extra virgin olive oil, vegetables, uh, fruits, nuts, seeds, eggs, grass-fed beef, fatty fish, things like that. And they found that after this intervention, patients uh, – were they their their symptoms were so significantly improved that a third of them in the intervention group actually uh, reached remission compared to only eight percent in the control group. Um, you know, it the, the caveat is that these patients already had pretty crappy diets to begin with. Um, you know, and eating a eating a bad diet can actually drive inflammation, and inflammation is now being uh, thought of as one of the um, contributors to depression. So what this study really seemed to suggest is that if you're if you have a, a you know depression that's being driven by diet and, and even maybe perhaps uh, not by improving your diet you actually can see a profound um, difference in your uh, in your mental health which I think is is really interesting especially considering the fact that you know so many people today as I mentioned one in ten people are on some kind of antidepressant drug which work no better than a placebo for patients with mild to moderate depression. 
I mean, these drugs tend to work um, much better for patients uh, the more severe their depression is. Um, but you know, there are many people that are, that are out there with mild to moderate depression that are on these kinds of drugs that, you know, their side effects are, are non-trivial and they might be better served potentially by changing their diets and also by doing a little more exercise, not to diminish, um, depression. Cause I think, you know, everybody at some point has struggled, uh, through depression, but, um, these drugs are really being handed out like they are, you know, Pez from a Pez dispenser and, and the research now on diet and mental health, I think, is very compelling. And the other thing is that by changing your diet um, and by taking, you know, supplements, maybe a fish oil, which has been shown to improve symptoms um, in patients with uh, psychotic disorders, um, these interventions don't carry stigmas the way antidepressants and, and antipsychotics do. So I think it's even, you know, potentially more um useful and, uh, and, a, and, a, and a more, you know, positive experience for these people um, that are suffering from these conditions. Yeah, no, it's amazing. We have, uh, we've met a lot of like psychologists and people who are, you know, now adopting and using these types of, you know, paleo Mediterranean paradigms to help manage anxiety and other sort of issues with patients. And I think it's, it's got to be a part of the picture, right? You can take a pill, you know, but uh, you've got to have the full picture. What else, um, what else about your book is something that our audience, you know, might be surprised by or really you were like, hey, if you if you need to know anything from this conversation, know this, what would that be? Well, I definitely, um, you know, I think your audience is very familiar. I talk a lot about just how damaging um, the wrong fats are to the brain. Uh, I highlight the types of fats, which are, you know, corn oil, canola oil, soybean oil. These are very, very damaging and they all um, seem to really impair the way the cell membranes that, um, that are, you know, that, well, all cells have cell membranes, but, uh, that seem to be particularly important for healthy cognitive function. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of talk about mitochondria these days in relation to healthy brain function, but before fuel can even get to the mitochondria, fuels need to pass the neuronal membrane. And I talk about the value of having, um, healthy fluid cell membranes. So, you know, your cell membranes essentially allow the ears for the cells to bob up to the surface, sort of like buoys on the water. Um, and we can think about this most practically in terms of how neurotransmitters function. So, you know, neurotransmitters are involved in every single aspect of your life, um, from the things that you love to your, you know, a having a sense of reward to your ability to learn, remember, and focus neurotransmitters are really at the center. They're the brain's chief messenger uh, chemicals. And the way they work is some neurotransmitter is released by a um, neuron where it crosses the synaptic cleft to reach the neighboring neuron. And that's how neurons communicate with one another. But in order for the neighboring neuron to hear the message contained by the neurotransmitter, it has to have the ability to allow these receptors to surface. And for that to happen, cell membranes need to possess the property of fluidity. And so I talk a lot about how um, various aspects of, of modern life create more rigid um, nerve cell membranes. And, uh, you know, this is seems to be to the detriment of our cognitive abilities. It's one of the reasons why omega-3s seem to improve cognitive function in part because they help um, with membrane fluidity, whereas the fats that make up 
the grain and seed oils that our food supply has become awash in seem to promote membrane rigidity. And likewise, trans fats, which are the worst fats of all, and which we inadvertently consume whenever we consume these grain oils because they're produced just as a byproduct of the production process, that actually creates cell membranes that are more like corpses with rigor mortis. So, you know, in order for your cell, for your mitochondria to be able to even get the fuel that they need, you need to really facilitate that your cell membranes, which is literally like the front line of uh, it's sort of the gate to the castle. Um, you know, you have to make sure that you that you've got healthy cell membranes. And I really, uh, I think, in the book, bring that into the fold as something that people really need to become aware of. And uh, and I also give very actionable and practical tips on how to you know how to attain that goal. That's amazing. Where I mean, we'll put all of the links in the show notes. But Genius Foods, we can find that on Amazon. I'm assuming Barnes and Noble and everywhere now that it's a New York Times bestselling book. Where can we connect with you? And what are you working on right now? Or you know, is there a new book coming up? Or what's what's happening in your wheelhouse? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm just so thrilled at the success of Genius Foods that definitely um, getting back into the writing room to try to figure out what the next what the next book is. Um, I also uh, produced a feature length documentary last year and uh, we're working on finding distribution for that. That's called breadhead and that's the first ever dementia prevention documentary. Um, so that should be out at some point this year. And then beyond that, yeah, just come and find me on social media. I'm always putting out content, whether it's, you know, infographics on Instagram or doing impromptu, uh, videos on Facebook live. I also might even consider doing a podcast. That's something that a lot of my followers are, have asked for me. And so nice. I feel like that could be fun. So it is fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It is super fun. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us and we will have all of the links to your book and social media in our show notes. Anything else you'd like to leave our audience with? Just that your audience kicks ass and, uh, <laughs> you know, thank them for listening to me. All right. Awesome. Thanks again. Have a great day. Thank you. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the Primal Kitchen Wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too perfect. It's so, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my god! So she likes like the mayo on. A oh yeah, she so she loves those. So we love them as well. We have uh, we we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo. We eat the balsamic. We eat the the ranch. Um, the avocado oil we use all the time. And, and so you know that's completely genuine. And I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish, Balance, Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. And uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> it's my pleasure. <laughs> 